This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All right, the text for today is John 6, 22 through 59. Bear with me. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea knew there had only been one boat. They also knew that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they ate the bread, and the Lord gave thanks. And when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I assure you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because the God the Father has set his seal of approval on him, Christ. So what can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Well, what sign then are you going to do so we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? And our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I assure you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the real bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus told them, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those who he has given me and should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And therefore the Jews started complaining about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They're saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And how can he now say, I have come down from heaven? So Jesus answered them, stop complaining among yourselves, okay? No one come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I give and will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And at that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. 
The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. And this is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your fathers ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. And he said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Most gracious and heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the words that we just sang, that we are indeed who you say we are. Father, I pray that we would believe that. God, I pray that even, even when we don't believe who you say we are, we are thankful that you still declare it over us. Father, I pray that as we uh, begin to hear and listen and let your spirit work on our hearts, I pray that what we say we believe matches with what we actually functionally believe. Father, I pray that that will be done not so that we can just solely feel better about ourselves or feel more right or more solid in our arguments, but God, so that you would get ultimate glory in your name being made famous because of the faith that we have, because of the grace that you've shown. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us our deepest need for you. God, I pray that I, I'm not asking that you remove or that we uh, overlook all of our other needs, our bodily needs, our corporeal needs, but God, I pray that we would move past that, that you would show us our deepest need for you so that our deepest longing could only be met by you. We pray that that would happen now through the power of your word, the power of your spirit, and to your glory in Jesus' name, amen. So we, we've been working through John, and, and we've, we've, uh, we've, we've covered a lot of ground, and we've got a lot to go. But what's been so great about this series is just looking through all the ways that this particular gospel writer has a very specific focus, uh, very different from the other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John has this very specific focus to show, to, to prove through the different signs he covers, to show exactly who Jesus is to show that Jesus is more than just a man, to show that he's more than just a guy with some really great tricks, a guy that's just really moral. He's showing us that he's indeed the son of God, God in the flesh. And he spends a lot of time showing that he, the, the proofs that, that show that he's the Messiah, which means he has the authority to speak and we have no other choice but to listen and to submit. And so uh, when, when, when we get, we've walked through so many different parts just in the first five and a half chapters, and we're coming to kind of the tail end of the story that we looked at last week. And so it, it made me think through this week just maybe to ask this question. How are you prone to receive needy people? I heard a few groans. <laughs> and again, we all have our subjective ways of how we define who's needy and who's not. So whatever definition you're using right now, we'll define it in a minute, but whatever definition you use, how are you prone to interact, receive, love, pray for, or engage someone that you deem to be needy? Probably has like an expiration date, right? I would imagine. And not necessarily, I'm not even saying what's good or bad yet. I'm just saying what, what's our heart bent? What's our heart posture? So let's look at a few ways that we define needy people. Uh, most psychologists uh, will define needy people uh, in this way. Uh, needy people often need to be around people all the time. One says, they feel the urge to be around people to feel happy and entertained. Aside from also being an extrovert, someone who derives their energy from other people, they could also be, just, they are likely a, a needy person. 
Another uh, says the need, they need others to approve of what they're doing. So they run things by their friends, run things by their family members, run things by people that mean something to them before they do anything. A person's neediness might shine through when they're faced with having to make a really tough decision. Oftentimes, those folks can be paralyzed if they don't have the folks that they can sound these ideas off of. If they're looking to everyone but themselves to tell them what to do, it could be that they're trying to make sure they aren't going to let anyone down. It might also be due to the fact that they don't trust themselves and they need others to tell them how to act or to direct their choices. Now, here's the danger with that, right? Then these needy folks, uh, if they turn out to be wrong in their pursuits, they can blame other people for having influenced that decision. Not only do they get to play the victim in the story, but they get to claim ignorance about what happened as well. Some needy people struggle to make connections with others. So when they do meet someone they can connect with, they tend to hold on very tightly. Some who have been hurt before don't have the easiest times making new connections. So when they do find someone they can trust and rely on, they might end up clinging too tightly to their new relationship for the fear of being hurt or left alone again. And finally, the, uh, their, their, issues, their issues always need to be front and center. So you, you may have a person whose neediness seems to have no end. And no matter how much you comfort them or support them, the well never seems to be filled. You often will look at this person almost like a drainer. Now here's, here, here's the thing with this. The danger in these kinds of relationships, and I would say the danger in any relationship, is that uh, we all have real needs, and we hope that in our relationships some of those needs can be met. The problem, the problem is no one is ever meant to meet them all for you. In other words, no one is ever meant to be Jesus for you. The, but, but what we typically, we would say we believe that, but then we function. The way we function is, okay, you have been this for me. Since you filled this role for me or you filled this well for me or you filled this, this deficiency for me this time, that has now shaped the ethos of our relationship, which means the moment you stop doing that, our relationship changes. The moment you stop doing that, I am now, or, or the moment, maybe it's just a moment where you're just not capable in that time to do that, and now that colors, it changes, it makes me embittered because that's primarily how I started to define our relationship. And so now I, 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 I'm now, I feel like I've been let down. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm so frustrated because I thought you were going to be this for me, and now, you, and now you're not. Some of y'all are just exhausted by listening to this definition, right? Just the very idea. You're like, man, I got three people in my mind right now. You're exhausted. You hear these descriptions. You're thinking to people. You, 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 might, you might really know, but there's another group in here, and I, and, I, and I hope for those of us that are humble enough to see this, some of us are getting anxious just thinking about this because there are some of us in here are going, maybe I've been needy in that way. Maybe I've been uh, that person, and, or maybe I'm so afraid of ever being taken that way. I'm so afraid of being a burden that I just hold on to my stuff all the time. I'm so, I, I, because I know how I am prone to react to the people like that, I don't want to ever be that to someone else. So I'm going to hold on to my stuff and I'm going to find a way to white knuckle it. I'm going to find a way to, to just, just have the strength and the fortitude, which can be rooted in pride, by the way. Because now I can say, look at what I've done and what I'm able to do. And I can now judge the other people who don't seem to have the emotional wherewithal to handle their own problems. 
And so I can now go, you know, I don't want to be that. And it's a scary thing because really there's deep needs that still aren't being met. But I just know how to act the part. I know how to put the facade on. I can put the the mask on. I don't want to be a burden because I think people might see me this way. Why? Because neediness isn't necessarily a praiseworthy attribute, is it? Not in our culture. We don't see it as something to be praised. We combat it with self-sufficiency, determination, mental resolve. So even if we have deep needs, we'd rather just fake it till you make it. We'd rather just play, play the role. We feel like if folks really knew just how needy we were, they wouldn't want to deal with us the same way. They wouldn't want to even be in, in, in real relationships with us in the same way that we get tired of being in relationships with other folks. In other words, we, are, we almost are certain that we will be judged the same way we judge the needy people. So we avoid, we hold, we stuff. So everybody in this room should find ourselves on some part of this spectrum, right? And probably we've been both at different times of our life, if we're honest. Times when I've been needy, times when I've kind of uh, uh, felt like I have to deal with my stuff on my own. Here's the danger in all of this. The scary thing for those of us who are at least starting to acknowledge, I, I know that there are things in me that might be taken to be needy. What I'm really saying is, I really fear that I'm too needy to be loved. I fear that whatever it is that, that's weighing me down, if I were to begin to share or open it up, maybe because I've, I've got some empirical evidence to prove it. I've, I've shared it with two or three people before, and I regretted it because I was let down, I was hurt, it was too much. You know, for some people, when they don't know how to deal with whatever heaviness it is, they don't even mean to. They just don't know what to do, so they start to avoid because they don't want to feel, right, that, that, that dissonance, that emotional dissonance that says, it's not that I don't care about you, I just don't know what to do, so I'd rather not feel that, so they start to avoid. So you can, when you go through this cycle, you can start to live in a way where you've got real needs, needs that need to be handled and need to be carried in, 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 in community, but, I, but you get to a place where you're just like, I just got to figure out how to do this on my own, and many of us in this room have been those people or are those people. I know the, the, the weight and the pain of that because I'm prone to be that way. I'm prone to feel. And most folks, I know those who are in leadership positions, those who are, spend time having to counsel, spend time uh, being that person that people lean on a lot, you are likely a person that does not share their stuff. You're likely a person that holds on to your stuff. And, and, and not, you may not mean for this to happen, but you're probably somebody that almost wears that as a badge of honor. Which, which almost guarantees that you'll never go to that next level. There are people to this day now that will actually preach that or, or be a motivational speaker and actually uh, extol the virtues of figuring out how to just hold it down yourself so that you can be the kind of person that other people can go to. And that's the reason why you see folks in those positions just snap. And you're like, where did that come from? I never, you know, a lot of times when horrible things just happen and most people are like, I, I just, I never saw it coming. They never seemed like that kind of person. That's because they've been holding everybody else's stuff and no one's been holding theirs. And, and they've never even sought it out. They, they already resolved in their mind that that was a futile effort. It was an endeavor that was a waste of time. So they just held it on their own. Jesus shows us something different here. What Jesus shows us in this passage is that he actually comes specifically and exclusively to rescue and save the needy. 
This is important because if you only look at other people as needy and not yourself, you will miss the very love of God. And you likely won't know how to show or display the love of God. If you think of it as, okay, I'm, the, I'm not needy. My job is to go help the needy people. You'll never know where the heart of God is. What Jesus shows us here is something very deep. Uh, he, he, he shows us that he loves and draws needy people. And as a matter of fact, he, he, he directs his love specifically toward people who are needy in this way. So as Zane just read, this portion of John, it's a, it's a lengthy one. By the way, this portion in John is the first of seven I am statements that Jesus makes. So if, if you were to just walk up to Jesus and just go, listen, a lot of people have a lot of things to say about you. I've heard lots of things. There's lots of things written. YouTube says a lot. Twitter says a lot. TikTok, whatever that is, says a lot. And so with all of that, I, I, I'm just going to ask you, Jesus, who are you? I know what people have told me. I know what mom and dad told me. I know what grandma told me. I know what my friends told me. Uh, who are you? And he would answer with these seven I am statements. This first one today, I am the bread of life. Here are a few others. We're going to see these in the next several weeks. I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. This one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, I am the vine. So we ask Jesus, who, who are you? And he's, he has at least seven answers that he's getting ready to lay this out. And we're going to see this over the next several weeks. So here we are. Jesus is in the midst of his ministry. We kind of deduced uh, last week, probably in the second year by this point. And he's been gathering disciples. He's been teaching crowds. He's been performing signs. And now the Apostle John gives special attention to Jesus' signs. And we already said it. In his book, John, he has more of these than anywhere else you'll see because he's trying, he has certain signs that don't show up in any of the other Gospels. He's trying to specifically show a few things. Now, there are some characteristics about these signs that we notice in John's Gospel. All of these signs are public supernatural acts. They're performed by Jesus himself. They always show the glory of Jesus to the disciples and the crowds. They're designed, John tells us this, they're designed to bring about faith in Jesus as the Son of God. Here's the other thing. We're going to see this in about six more chapters. Sometimes they're even designed to harden the already unbelieving heart. Explicitly identified as signs within the gospel. And finally, Jesus these signs show that Jesus brings life to the world through physical representation. So each one of these signs are going to fall into this. So as we already know, John's been uh, covering all of these, right? He focuses on seven specific signs uh, uh, in particular. He, he looks at, uh, and there's several. We're just going to, uh, I'll show you five here. First, we already talked about it. He turns water into wine at the wedding. We talked about what that meant. Then he heals the official's son. We talked about what that meant. Then he heals the, the paralytic, the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years back in, in chapter 5. And, and, and chapter 6 tells us a large crowd followed Jesus because of those acts. So they already were paying attention and wondering what was going on. And then uh, what happened last week, he feeds the 5,000, which we said was likely closer to 20,000 if you count uh, wives and children, right? They only counted men there. So you're looking at almost 20,000 people getting fed from five loaves and two fish. 
And this has been this incredible thing. It was so big that there was food left over. So of course, here we find ourselves now. People are seeing what Jesus did. They're overwhelmed. They can't believe that they just saw this incredible stuff. They just ate food when they were hungry, and he provided that food for them. And they're so amazed that they did what we said happens, right? We, have our, we use our, kind of, uh, our temporary needs. When they're met, we define the person that way. Well, they were defining Jesus the same way. Oh, oh, you're the bread guy. When we get hungry, we just come to you, pull the lever. You're the bread guy. Miraculously, that's cool how you did it. That's cool, but as long as I'm getting the bread, I'm good. And so they start to, they see who he is and they go, since you met this temporary need that's so important to me, you have to be king. So they tried to force him to be king, remember? And Jesus withdrew somehow and got out of their clutches and kind of disappeared. And the, the disciples get into a boat and cross, uh, cross the, the, the lake, Lake Galilee, really, when you go there, but the Sea of Galilee as we know it. So he's crossing over that body of, they're crossing over that body of water, and they're like, I don't know where Jesus was, but we had to get out of here. So they're like moving, 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 and then all of a sudden, Jesus is just sea walking over the water. I said that on purpose. Some of y'all will get it. Some of y'all don't have ears to hear it. That's okay. So he's walking and he's going across the water and all of a sudden, you know, this incredible miracle happens and he starts to lay out exactly what that means. And so all of that, we saw that last week, he's, he's gone and, and, and later that evening, we see here, right after the disciples go across the sea and Jesus does this, the next day, verse 22, people realize that Jesus is gone. It took them a while. Somehow he got out of wherever they were and now they're realizing I mean, we thought we'd eventually find him, but he's not here. Where is he? He's the bread guy. Where'd he go? It's the next day now. We're going to get hungry again. So they realize if he's not over on this side, we know that the disciples went over there. He must be over there. So they get in boats. And they travel to the other side to go find him. So here they are. Uh, they make it all the way to the other side, uh, other side of the sea. And this is where we find ourselves today. Verse 26, they finally find him, they see him, they, they locate him, and you see what they ask them, how, how did you get over here? And look at how Jesus responds, verse 26. He says, Jesus answered, truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Now that, just let that sit for a minute. In other words, they're saying that Jesus already knows what they're after, right? He knows why they're there. They're not coming after him because they saw these public supernatural acts and that their, their, their hearts were so moved by his glory that therefore their faith was ignited. That wasn't why they were there. Instead, they're looking for him because they just want more bread. This is, when we say this, you know, it becomes cliche over time because we say it and we hear it and we say we believe it, but ultimately we can't just want, we can't just want Jesus' stuff without wanting him. You can't just keep, this is why it's dangerous in church circles where it's like, I just want to get my blessing, I just want to get my blessing, I just want to get my blessing. How about I just want to get Jesus? It's dangerous because the moment you don't get that blessing, you now think, what did I not do? What did I do wrong? What mantra did I, did I not pray correctly? Which you never see that example in scripture anywhere, by, by the way. But that's how we've been taught Christianity is supposed to, to work. So these folks were doing the very same thing. Hey, they, they didn't do anything sinful, right? 
They, they liked Jesus. They seemed to respect him. They seemed to go along with whatever he was saying. And so they said, hey, we had a need that was filled, that, that was met. That's awesome. I want to meet that need again. Since you did it then, that's who you're going to be for me now. And he, he slows them up and he's like, oh, you guys are just here because you just want that. You think I'm, the, you think I'm just cosmic Santa Claus. You, you, you think I'm just kind of like the spiritual kind of slot machine. You just kind of just insert, thank you, Jesus, and all of a sudden, the blessing comes out. Oh, you're just here because you just want bread. You don't really want me. And so he calls them out for that. You're looking because you want bread. They, in other words, they saw the sign, but they never saw the sign. Like they, they saw with their eyes what he did, but spiritually they never truly saw. In other words, you can look at Jesus, you can gaze at him, you can stare at him and still never see. It's just not enough to see the sign if you don't see what the sign signifies. If you miss that, then all he'll be is just cosmic Santa Claus. Wow, another sign. Wow, another sign. We know that. Look at this stories in the gospel. Look at the book of Acts. Incredible miracles that are done by Jesus and his apostles. And in some cases, two to three days later, they're turning against. Some days, the very night, they're turning against. So this is why it's dangerous when all we want to do, and sometimes church movements want to do this, we want to be in environments where we just keep seeing something. I want to keep, and I love this, we want to see manifestations, but your faith should never be predicated on a manifestation. Because once you don't get the manifestation, I'm, I'm spiritually dry, I just need something else, I just need another thing, I need another thing. Wait a minute, what about what he's already done? What about what he's already promised? What about the things he's already shown up for? What about the things that he says we can hold on to? We keep saying, I, I am who you say I am, but it's really, I'm conditionally who you say I am as long as you keep giving me more stuff. All they see is a man who can make a lot of bread. And if they stay with him, they think they won't have to be hungry. And they can, just, they can live lives with bellies that are full. And you look at what Jesus says next. You look at what happens in verse 27 or what they say. He says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. He's basically saying, look, y'all worked all, super hard to find me. All this effort, all this energy, just to get another free lunch. And he said, don't, don't just work for food that perishes, that rots, that gets moldy, Work for the food that actually lasts. Listen, you know why it's draining in relationships? The reason why it can be draining in relationships is because no matter how, how adept I am at helping to fit certain or fill certain needs or meet certain needs for you, I'll never do it perfectly, and there will come a time where I just don't have it, right? It's going to come a time no matter what. The reason why relationships get draining is not because people are like, oh, I just, I just don't want to help this person anymore. It's like I helped them on day one. I helped them on day two. I helped them on day 17. On day 18, I just ain't got it. I just don't. I, I'm done. I'm spent. And, you, and the thing is, because you've defined the relationship now, you will look at me on day 18 as you did on day zero when I didn't do anything. You, it's the same to you because you've defined it this way. And so, and so when you see this, it's so, he's saying, look, it, it's not that your needs don't matter. It's just your needs aren't deep enough. Your needs, they start and stop at the temporary. They don't go deep enough. 
You realize if you acknowledge the deeper desires, just how much more fulfilling they will be when they're met. And so they hear him say this. And you see how they respond because they don't get it, which none of us would have gotten it either. He says, they say, well, what can we do to perform the works of God, they ask. And you're telling them, you're saying all these things about God the Father doing these things and giving things to us. How could we, what do we need to do to perform the works of God? And he said, they, they, they said, what sign then are you going to do so we may see and believe you? They asked, what are you going to perform? <laughs> he said, they, 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 actually, there's something else they do here that I want to touch on in a minute. But when you think about this, listen to how Jesus answers. He, he, he's already said, they're like, what can we do to perform the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God. This is such a big one. This is the work of God, that you believe in the one that he sent. Y'all, this is big. Because it's, he, you realize that it wasn't just, you can, you can walk in a way that looks like you're following Jesus and never really believe him. They followed him to the other side of the water. They, they could have truly said, no, Jesus, we've been following you all the time. This is why one of the things we got to be really careful about as just human beings, but especially as Christians, is to be careful not to declare a thing that's so much louder than your ability to demonstrate it. Be really careful about being that. Here's what we do. When I know I haven't demonstrated a thing, I'd much rather just declare it loudly and say, but I can do this. I do that. I love Jesus. I pray. I read scripture. But what do you demonstrate? And when you don't demonstrate it, you just start declaring louder. Demonstration should always be louder than your declaration. Always. So they, 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 they followed him, and so they're kind of basically saying, like, we're here. What else do you want us to do? Clearly, we wanted to see you because we came all the way over the, the, the lake here. So, so we're here. And he's going, the work that you really need to do is belief. That's a hard one. Because it's actually easier, right? It's easier to just kind of fake it and declare it than to actually demonstrate that thing being true. Same thing goes when, in any kind of relationship, right? When you look at the way that we engage as people, right? If, if you hurt a person or there's a relationship and somebody does something to harm the person, it doesn't help to be like, well, I'm really sorry that happened and that's it. Or we talked about the non-apology. I'm really sorry if you feel that way. It's not really an apology. I'm sorry for like these emotions that I caused and elicited in you. Sorry they're hitting you like that. It's almost saying, I'm sorry you're so sensitive. It's not an apology, right? But it's a declaration of a thing. You're declaring something and you think you're actually doing something, but you're not. So how do we demonstrate, right? What does it mean to demonstrate real contrition and real brokenheartedness and real repentance and real reconciliation? That's where, where real relationships happen. But that's not where they were. So Jesus is looking at them and he's like, the real work is actually believing. Because you see, believing is not just uh, uh, the, the, the seed of your uh, uh, intellect. It's not even just the seed, the, the seed of your uh, ability to do a thing. It's really at the heart of your emotion, at the heart of your will. What have I resolved to do so that my actions match my declaration? That's what real belief does. So if the way we know you believe it is by what you do, 
But the belief has to precede that. So they, here they are. They're, they're, they're minds, their minds are blown because he's basically telling them, like, all the stuff that you've done still doesn't really show anything, yet you need to actually demonstrate that you actually believe this. And they're, they're like, well, what, what sign then are you going to do so that we can see and believe you? How do we know we can? Try? In other words, look, Jesus, that's cool, and you've been doing a lot of really cool stuff. All that stuff you did was amazing. Can you do another one? What do we say? Jesus only becomes as good as his last miracle. If all you keep doing is waiting for another miracle, he'll only be good as the last one. And you won't move any further in your spiritual journey until he sees another one. But see, that's not the currency he operates in with us. When he does it, praise the Lord. That's awesome. We don't shun it at all. But that's not the normal currency he operates with us. It's, he, he doesn't just operate in, hey, the only way I'm going to keep you close is to do another miracle and to do another miracle. That's not what we see. And so they're waiting. They're like, what are you going to do? What are you going to show us? Show us something else. Do another miracle. Maybe we'll believe you. Oh, and by the way, in case you can't come up with something, we can help you out. See, we always have good ideas for God. We got all kinds of ideas about what he ought to do to prove some things. Well, if I was God, I would do this. I praise God you ain't God. And you need to praise God I'm not God. Because if there, listen, there's a lot of things that we would probably do if we were God. And so it's really, it's really easy, I hear you, it's really easy to kind of make, throw these statements out and to act this way, but, but ultimately they're looking at them and they're like, all right, well, look, we already know what we want from you, and since you, you know, you, you don't really, you're not throwing any more ideas for miracles out, we've got an idea. And then they do what we often do, right? Especially those of us who know some scripture, we start telling God about himself in ways to prove, to make him do stuff for us. Lord, you said in your word in Habakkuk, even though I don't ever read Habakkuk, but today I did because I want you to know I read your word and you said X, Y, and Z. So do it. This is one of those ways where in some ways you're not obeying God out of humility. You're obeying him so you can hold him hostage by the things he said. That's not a relationship. That's how the elder brother operated. Remember? This idea that, Father, why are you showing mercy to him? I did this for you. I did that for you. I never did these things. I always obeyed you. You owe me my stuff. I'm holding you hostage through my obedience. That's not a relationship. So, so when you look at how they respond, it shouldn't be shocking to us because they're just reacting the way that we would probably react. Listen, I know what I want from you. You're not answering my questions fast enough, so I got something for you. And I'm going to quote some scripture to you to really make my point. And so they go, well, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness just as it is written. Like they're going to quote scripture to Jesus and, and give him a theology lesson. And say, well, you know, it, it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat, which is a reference back to Exodus 16. Remember Jesus, what happened, right? And we know this. God had rescued his people from uh, out of slavery in Egypt, after which they were in the desert complaining. We're starving, Lord. It, it's bad here, but, but at least we, you know, it's, it's worse here than it was there. It was bad in Egypt, but at least we had food. So they're complaining and they're whining and we're probably going to die. And God provided every day. They woke up and this bread-like substance was on the ground. They would get out of their tents and they would go, man, they, we've, got, we've got stuff. They don't really know what it is exactly. Right? They would gather it up and have enough for the, for the day. God told them, don't store it for overnight because it's going to spoil. There's a reason why that was the case. But he said, don't, just, just, in other words, don't store it up. Don't try to actually build up your own self-sufficiency now. 
I'm going to make you have to be relying on me every day. So they're looking back. Yeah, Jesus, we remember when that happened. It's interesting, by the way, they, they didn't really know what to call it. So the word manna in Hebrew actually is just a word that's almost like our version of whatchamacallit. Like they don't really know what to call this thing. So it's almost like, what is it? <laughs> Lord, can I get some more whatchamacallit, please? Because it was really, really good. So, so they, they remember this. This is a huge part of their history, right? So that's, that's really great and it's good to remember and praise the Lord for it. But they're, they, they're looking back and they're going, all right, well, God, since you don't seem to have any other ideas, we have some ideas. Listen, be very careful about defining Jesus by your temporary appetite. Be really careful. Because the, for them, that's the deepest they could go. They, they can only think about a temporary appetite and not an eternal one. Hey, based on what you're doing, we talked about last week, all the ways that Jesus in many ways is doing things that are easily uh, comparable to Moses. Because he's tried to show, listen, Moses was never meant to be your savior. He was meant to point out ahead as a foreshadowing to the real savior. In other words, we all respect Moses, but I'm the greater Moses, right? So they're looking at him and they, they're remembering another example of something Moses did. And they're going, listen, you look like the new Moses, so cool. Do some things Moses did. We'll take that. And he looks at them and he's like, by the way, Moses didn't give it to you. God did. The, the things that you thought, this is what's interesting. Jesus so often, what we think we know about him, the scripture we think we know, he's in the business of deepening and even correcting our faulty understanding. That's why it's so dangerous to have this unwavering, intransigent view on a thing and go, I just will not change. I will not be moved. I, will be emo I, I won't be malleable. I won't change. This is what I've always known. That's all I'm holding on to. And he, he really flips the script on him and says, no, the stuff that you thought you knew about Moses, you, you don't have it right. He's definitely a prophet, but the things that he was doing, he wasn't doing of his own accord. That was stuff God was doing. And he wants to give you true bread from heaven which is the person who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They don't really get it. They're looking at him and they're like, whatever magic, man, just give us this magic bread. That's, that's all I'm about right now. I, all this fine stuff, it's cool language and you, you sound real poetic and so I don't really know what that means. All I know is you did some magical stuff before, do magical stuff again. And he, when, when you look at how he talks in verse 35, it's really interesting. He says, I am, because that's why they go, sir, just give us the bread always, please. Like, they're, they're lying. He gives this really deep theological answer to them, and they're like, whatever, give us that bread. Just the audacity, right? It's just so, but we laugh, but come on, that, isn't that us? Like, I came to you because I wanted something from you. It's almost like when you're talking to somebody, and you're just waiting for them to finish so you can say what you wanted to say to begin with. That's what we do with God. We have our preset combos with God. I really don't want to wait to hear what you have to say. I already have your script written for you. Just fall in line. So they hear him, and he's like, no, this is not what it's about. You got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. Whatever, dude. Need that bread. That's literally what it looks like they're saying. And so he looks at them, and he starts. But here's the thing, because we talk about neediness. These folks are really, really needy. What are they wanting, right? They're wanting what oftentimes we want. I'm glad you did this for me then. Can you keep doing it for me? Can you keep doing it for me? Can you keep doing it for me? There's one really great thing to see about this. Jesus doesn't get exhausted by our neediness. We need to feel the safety to be able to know that no matter how needy I might be or how scared I am to be able to go to other people with this, Jesus never shuns us for being needy. What he does is he forces you, he calls you 
to acknowledge your deeper need so he can fill that for you. So he looks at them being completely, clearly they don't get it. Their hearts are not where they need to be. And you look at what he says. After they're like, sir, just give us this bread. And he looks at them and he says, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. When he says, I am the bread of life, and he says these things, this, he, you realize that uh, the idea of bread is a, is a metaphor that is well understood, especially in the ancient world. Bread is uh, the most consumed food in the history of humankind. They, they most... Uh, 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 archaeologists have found evidence now. They used to think that bread goes back about 10, 15,000 years. They now have found evidence to show it goes back roughly about 30,000 years. That is the one thing before anything else. You, you may not, be, there's a lot of things that taste better than bread, but you can make it on bread for a long time. It's the reason why, like, my parents would say things like, if you don't like your food, you can just eat bread and water. You'd be like, y'all, like, man, your parents are mean. No, that's just if we didn't like the food. Y'all realize there's some young kids in here. We didn't have the option to, like, choose what food we ate. We, let me just say that we're going to tangent real quick because I can, because I'm the pastor here, so let me just say this real quick. We didn't have the option of being like, in my house, we got three different types of milk. I love my kids, so they can get it. But you realize that you didn't have that kind of option back in the day. Whatever the milk was, that's what you had. And if you didn't have milk, we had pet milk, and we acted like we liked it evaporated milk. We acted like we liked it, right? You didn't have a, a now we have so many choices. I got, uh, I mean, this, I, I got almond milk. I got oat milk. I got all these other kinds of milk. I haven't had real milk in years. <laughs> so when you think about just what bread, when my family would go and they're like, listen, if you don't like this, you don't like that, you can just eat bread and water because it's known that you can make it for a while just eating bread and water. You can make it for a while. A lot of the nutrients that are there, you can, you can live off of it. It might not be great, but you can do it. So bread has always been this picture of like your deepest kind of physical need being met. So when Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life, he's saying, unlike bread that will go stale eventually, unlike bread that no matter how full your stomach is, it's going to get empty again. And you're going to have to go and fill it again and again. And again, he says, but I'm the bread of life, which means this is a bread after which you will not hunger again. You won't thirst again. They hear all of this and they hear these explanations he gives. He starts to lay things down. He really starts getting heavily theological with them. He goes, all the people that the father has given me, they're going to be mine. Everyone the father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. There is that needy thing again, right? He actually, he actually comes for the needy people. If you're needy and you acknowledge your need and you see that I'm the bread that you need, I will never push you away. You will never exhaust me. No matter how many times you have the same problem, y'all know that can be exhausting. It can be exhausting. And not only is it exhausting for the hearer, it's exhausting for the person sharing the story yet again. It's exhausting to be like, listen, I still have the same problem. I'm still carrying the same weightiness. I'm still dealing with this thing that just has not gone away. And I'm just so worried about sharing it with anybody, and I'm just exhausted by it. And Jesus says, I'm never shunning you. Bring it every day. Bring it every minute. This is who I came for. And he starts to explain who God is, and he explains this is the will of my Father, that everyone 
who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. They hear all these things that really should have just elicited incredible joy and excitement, maybe not fully understanding, but going, whatever you're talking about right now, tell me more. But instead, many of these folks start grumbling. They're grumbling. They're like, no, that's not what we wanted to hear. That's not why we followed you over here. I can get in the boat and turn back around. Like, what, the stuff you just told me, that's not what I, that's not what I bargained for, because he's not giving them what they wanted in the way that they wanted it. I mean, that's really us, right? Like, it's, we always say, I want to pray and I want to hear from God until he gives an answer we don't really like. That's why a lot of times, if there's an answer we don't like, we just say he didn't answer our prayer. He answered it. It was just no. He answered it. It was no. And praise the Lord, it's no, because it's probably for his glory and for our betterment that it is no. I don't understand it, and I would never try to, sometimes I feel like people in, in, in really condescending ways try to connect tea leaves and dots. I can't understand it. It's things I still don't get right now. Can't wait to ask the Lord, why this? I want to understand why. I want to see why. And if I don't see why, Lord, then help me be able to see where your glory is here. Hard, difficult, not easy, not even the answer I necessarily want. But somehow God is showing them, Jesus is showing them, my answer is the one you absolutely need. And so when you look at this, they're in, they're, they're, the way they're interacting with him, you can understand then where the source of their frustration is because he's not doing what they wanted. All he wanted was more of the magic bread. Instead of giving us magic bread, he's saying he is the bread. So they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't this just Jesus, son of Joseph and, and Mary? We already talked about this before. Like, isn't he to do this, like, kind of illegitimate kid? Aren't there a lot of rumors about who his real daddy was? Like, wasn't his mama kind of crazy talking about, like, an angel told her some stuff? Like, he, got the, he has the nerve to, to say this stuff? We know his mom and dad. How can he fix his mouth to say, I have come down from heaven? He's like, you... Almost weren't born. They almost stoned your mother. What are you talking about? And this is when he really goes deep. He sees their confusion and he sees where they're going. And in verse 43, he says, and he puts it really clearly. He says, stop complaining among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who was from God. He has seen the Father. He's talking about himself. This is a key thing here, though. Jesus is looking, and in many ways, he's doing kind of what we need to be able to do, too. Right? This is a harder theological concept, but the fact is, Jesus simply says, Y'all don't need, you don't need to get all confused and complaining and getting weirded out by this. If you have been following the Father and you truly have been listening to his word and his spirit is really upon you, you'll get it. If you don't, you just won't get it right now. We know that a lot of them didn't get it right then. We, we know that it would take even several chapters into Acts for several folks to finally get it, right? Because we're always on these varying aspects of our journey. So here's the thing. We don't look at a person and go, you're not getting it, shun. No, you don't get it right now. This is why we can't know. And this is why I don't play this game of like figuring out. Because clearly there's some language here that can make us really uncomfortable. Wait a minute, God. Are you saying that these people can't know unless you change their heart? Well, why do you change some and not change others? That's not our place. That's not our role. That's not our job. I treat everybody as potentially changed by God. And that's all I can do. 
You are potentially changed by God, and if he moves upon your heart, he will do it. My job is just be here, continue to point to his attributes, point to who who he is, point to his grace, point to his mercy, and when the Holy Spirit enables your heart to respond, it will. That's our our role. That's That's the only job we have. I can't change your heart. I can't argue the truth of God into your heart. When I was younger, I used to try to. Loved apologetics, loved being able to come up with every good logical argument against every potential rebuttal you may have. But the scripture says, he who wins souls is wise, not he who wins arguments. And so we've got to get to a place where we see it's the spirit of God that does this. It's not us. It's not our resolve. It's not our intellect. It's not our ability to argue. It's none of that. So he says, don't, don't worry. The only way you can, uh, you're going to get this is if the Father, if you've been responding to the Father and the Father's love and the Father's heart and the Father's word is in you, then that's it. Because basically he's kind of saying, he's saying, uh, don't, don't let this trip you out, but I'm, I'm the real bread. That's what you, you may not know this now, right? But you might remember this eventually. And when you do, that truth is still going to be true. There are things that I did not want to hear as a kid. There are things that did not make sense to me as a kid. Some of them still don't, but there are things that do. And the things that do come up spiritually all the time, like, wow, I now see what that, what that truth was. I now see why that truth about God's character was, was brought up so often and was emphasized so often. And when I was a kid, it didn't make any sense, but now it does. He says, this kind of neediness that has exhausted you, I don't run away from that because I want to feel an even greater need. I want to give you eternal life. I want you to come to me and I want you to eat this bread of life, living bread, feasting on me and being satisfied forever. And here's what we see at 52. They're arguing, they're confused. They couldn't see Jesus as anything more than a temporary need filler because oftentimes that's all we are to each other, right? I I often can't be anything more to you than one who can help meet a need for now. That's why it becomes exhausting. And it's not because we don't love each other. It's because we just can't do it fully without exhausting ourselves. My temporary needs, they will wear you out. Your needs often wear me out. No, I'm just kidding. But they will, they can (laughs) wear me out, right? This is just our, this is who we are. Let's just be real. That's who we are. And it's not an excuse to not keep showing up. Right? But that's the reason why this is supposed to be done in community. It was never meant to be done by just one person. It's the reason why as a church we don't believe in just the pastor-CEO model. Right, This plurality of elders, which is what we see in Scripture, is the way the church is supposed to be governed. So it's not just one person handling everything. It's not good for my heart. It's not good for your soul. It's not good for anybody. So, so it's not that we're supposed to just avoid it. We just go in with, it's like a very calculated risk. Listen, going in and we're going to show up. And we're gonna, it's going to be imperfect, and there are times where you're going to fail me, and there are times where I'm going to fail you, but if we're walking in humility and repentance, we keep the cycle going until he returns. One of the things that, that uh, we see after this, I was thinking about some of the real big applications, and there was something that really hit in this, because Jesus keeps, keeps uh, the, way that he tip, the, the way that he couches this and the way John couches this is by using this idea of deep need, a, uni- a universal need that every human being can connect to, right? Hunger. It's a deep universal need. One of the things we have to get about the way Jesus works and the way the, the authors of the Gospels uh, work is that 
They, they show you that every reality that we see, that we hear, that we feel, that we experience is designed by God to reveal Jesus. Everything. Hard to even accept sometimes. But everything we experience, what we see, what we feel, what we think, those things are designed by God to reveal Jesus. The entire universe is designed to reveal Jesus. Long before you ever came into being, long before you were ever created, long before you were a zygote in your mother's womb, long before, any, before you were even a thought, long before Jesus came in the flesh, long before the Bible was written down, God invented something called hunger and something called bread so that someday when Jesus showed up, we would have categories for understanding who he is. So when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he's not looking for a metaphor that just happens to be convenient. He's revealing the reason bread exists. In other words, every growling stomach, every empty belly, every fulfilling meal, every satisfied hunger in the history of the world has been leading to this moment when Jesus shows up and people say, who are you? And he says, I am the bread of life. That should mean something to you. Because you know what it is to be hungry, and you know what it is to be filled. He didn't just discover this analogy. He designed it. He built it into the fabric of the world so that he can reveal Jesus to us. That's what our hunger means. That's what was true of Israel's history. Manna. He gave it to feed them, to keep them alive in the desert. And ultimately, though, he gave them bread from heaven so that one day Jesus could say, hey, Jewish community who's familiar with this idea of bread and what this meant for you guys, I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. That story, he says, points to me. I've given you a category for you so that you know how you should relate to me. I'm not just the one who gives you stuff to meet your needs. I'm the very thing that meets your deepest desire. Your neediness doesn't scare me because it's my joy and my purpose to fulfill it. Jesus is connecting our shared experience of, of physical hunger and our shared experience of deep soul hunger. We have all been hungry. We've eaten, we've been satisfied. All of us have a deep soul hunger and we desperately try to satisfy it. There is a deep soul hunger in every single person under the sound of my voice. There is something deep within you that you're trying to meet. There's, a, there's some type of a hole or a deficit somewhere that makes you long for something else to fill it. And the sad thing is that we desperately try to satisfy it on our own, and how do we satisfy it? We satisfy it with this idea of self-sufficiency. We, we don't really want to look at all the ways we might truly be deficient, so what we do is we, we hide from true deficiency behind counterfeit self-sufficiency. I, I create something else and go, okay, I got it now. I'm convinced that I've, that I've got this and, and, and I, and I want to make sure that I don't really have to see just how much I don't have this. I don't like it, the way it's going to make me feel. I don't want to look like I need to lean on something in order for me to make it. I don't want to look like that because it just makes me feel like I'm not self-sufficient enough and I know this is how we think because anytime we see other people who have to lean on something to make it, we use a phrase that's very curious. Oh, man, they're just using that as a crutch. Really think about that logically for a minute. Why would you criticize? First of all, do we have anything against crutches? Do we have anything against wheelchairs? 
So, so it's not that you excoriate the wheelchair itself. You don't have a problem with a crutch in and of itself it, it, because you would never just look at somebody. Listen, what was it, three, four years ago when I broke my ankle? Broke my ankle doing dumb stuff thinking I was still young. By the way, the older you get, the better you were at stuff you think. So you do stuff and you're like, oh, my goodness. But anyway, broke my ankle. And we had just started the church. It was like a year in. And I'll never forget, I'm on crutches. Somebody had to teach me how to use them. And I'm walking, coming in, hobbling into the church. Never forget, one person ended up bringing a little stool for me to put my foot up on the stool. Somebody put the picture on our little Facebook feed so everybody sees me as, like the old folks used to call the sick and shut in, like that's who I was at the time. When people saw that, they saw the crutches. Were they going, that's just sad. He's got to use a crutch. That's just sad. When do we have this hatred for devices that help people make it? Like, why? Why do we do that? No, that's not the problem. The problem isn't that you hate crutches. The problem is you hate the idea that you might ever need them. You don't like that. You, you pride yourself on being a person that never needs it because your self-sufficiency is where your identity is. And what Jesus is saying is those that follow me, their identity is not in their strength. It's in their brokenness because that's the need I came to fill. So this idea when people go, well, you know, so either A, believers will do it. You know, what we really do it is uh, specifically as we just now, right, the last decade or so, the church is just now starting to come around to the need for legitimate, holistic mental health. This is one area that in the church is still really taboo because a lot of folks come from, I come from the same way. Pray it away, learn enough scripture, you'll be good. Even though science shows us so many other areas about the biochemistry of the brain and the things that need to happen. You have no problem going to a cardiologist when there's a congenital heart defect. But if there's something wrong in the brain, I don't need that. That's for crazy people. See, that's what self-sufficiency looks like. That's not what humility looks like. But when you see somebody who needs maybe medicine or needs to meet with a therapist, your mindset is, that's just a crutch. If they really had their heart uh, rooted in Christ, that wouldn't be a thing. As if the brain isn't another organ that's been affected by the fall. Everything else has been, but not that. See, this is, this is where we've got to be super careful because ultimately we're not loving each other well if we don't get this at the most core level. Stop thinking. The reason why you're afraid, the reason why you see that as a crutch is because you don't ever want to think that you might need that. Maybe, possibly, maybe for a temporary period or maybe for a really long time. It doesn't matter. You're so afraid of that. And guess what? People see that, which means if they have that need, they for sure are not going to come to you with it because they're so afraid because they go, oh, wow, you see this as a function of my lack of spiritual maturity. So I, I, I can't, I can't be, I don't know that I can breathe. You might even be right and I don't know it, but I don't know how to get there. So I'll just keep trying to memorize scripture. I'll just keep trying to memorize the prayers you gave me. Same thing for atheists. If, you, if you're a person that really is like, you know, I don't know that I really need uh, God in the same way that you do, you need it because it serves as a crutch for you. But for me, I'm good. I don't want to believe that I need anything outside of me in order to make it. I don't want to believe that. So for the people who are weak enough who need that, cool for you. I don't need that crutch. Again, nothing wrong with the crutch. I'm just thankful I'm not one that needs one. And so when you look at this, you, you, you realize that at the end of the day, we're not taking umbrage with the device. We, we're taking umbrage with the idea that we might need it because we don't accurately see our own need. You don't want to believe you're needy. You want to feel strong. So you ignore the deeper longings of your heart. 
Because to acknowledge them would be an admission of just how needy you really are. And further, for those of you who might not even be sure if God even exists sometimes, this longing is actually proof that God exists in my opinion. C.S. Lewis put it this way, such an incredible thing. It's called the argument from desire. Listen to this statement. Listen to it closely because it's so very telling. It says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men and women feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find myself in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. Every human being experiences this longing, this, this ache, this inconsolable desiring for, for this we know not what. Jen preached on this uh, several, several months ago on this idea, this German word sensuck, this idea that there's this longing for something I know to be home, but I haven't quite seen it before, but there's my heart. I get little pieces of it. I get little tastes of it. It makes my heart go, yes, more of that, more of that. I need that feeling. I need that. There's something there. I've never seen it, but I sense that it's there somewhere. All of us are longing for home. We're longing for it. And we fill it with other stuff. There's this God-shaped vacuum that gives us the true sense of home. And I'm just filling all kinds of other shapes in there. It's not God. It doesn't look like God. A piece of it might fit. So I get some gratification there. But the whole thing doesn't. And it was never meant to fit. So then it lets me down and I find something else. Because I'm longing for something. There's this, this, this unappeasable want, this incommunicable hunger, this wild, sweet homesickness at the very core of who we are. And we're always searching. We're searching. I'm searching for this object of this desire. Lead singer from U2, Bono, has a lot of incredible things actually to say on this. And he said something. He said, he said I've done all these things and I've had all these incredible uh, experiences, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. The very existence of this desire is a testimony to the existence of God, just as the fact of physical hunger testifies that we come from a, a people, from, from a group that repairs its body by eating and inhabit a world where eatable substances exist. So if there's a God-shaped hole in the human soul, it must mean that God is real and we were made for him. So consider this. Consider this an experiential argument for God's reality. If you have that soul hunger, if it's been awakened by the beauties of nature or the joys of fellowship or the power of good stories or the sweetness of happy memories or the impressiveness of good music, recognize that your soul hunger is pointing you to the bread that came from heaven. Are you needy? See, when we started and I said, hey, think about what you think about needy people. Did you think of yourself? Are you needy? Your answer should be yes. If you're honest and you're humble, your answer should be yes. And that shouldn't cause anxiety. That's the thing. 
It shouldn't cause anxiety because Jesus loves needy people. He came specifically for needy people. And it's only exhausting when we try to fill it with things that can't ever fully satisfy. So here's my challenge. Be needy. I'm not saying just like make up arbitrary reasons to quote unquote be needy, but acknowledge, embrace the things that really are needy within us. Let them be what they are. Take the mask off. We've got to be, I get it, we've got to be in a safe place to do that. It's not always safe to just do that around just anybody, but when you get within communities of folks where you realize, okay, I can start to open this and I can start to share this, be needy. Acknowledge your deep neediness, the incessant need that arises over and over and over again. Do it. When the scripture says, blessed are the poor in spirit, you realize that's the beginning that we, that, that was our first sermon series we ever did as a church. And I felt like that did so much formative work for us as a, as a group, as a, as a church, to think through that blessed are the poor in spirit. This idea, blessed are those who actually are able to see and acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy. Somehow there's a blessing in that. And then the very next thing is blessed are those who mourn. What are we mourning? The spiritual brokenness that we're now realizing. We're mourning it. Blessed are they that mourn because they will be comforted. We, we, we have to acknowledge our brokenness in such a way that we mourn it in such a way where only the bread will satisfy. It's not enough for me to mourn my sin and then you come over to me and pat me on the back and be like, but you're still good, man. You did this, you did that. Let me remind you of your resume. You're still pretty good. Don't be so broken over that. No, actually, the, the only thing you could really comfort me with is, but you know that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. He's come to remake us, right? And so as long as you are fighting as long as you are hating that sin, I'm here to hate it with you. I'm here to love and encourage you and then remind you that despite that, you still are who God says you are because he loves the needy people. So are you weak? Listen, I'm tired. I'm weak. I'm needy. So I invite you, come at me, tell me that my faith is a crutch for the weak. My response, you bet it is. It should be. That's the point. The gospel is good news for the weak. It's good news for those that are tired, the ones who've come to the end of themselves. The gospel is for me. The gospel is for you. It's not as though it's simply useful on the hard days. Weakness is the whole point of the gospel. I'm lame, and without the gospel, I'll live fallen. I'm blind, and without the gospel, I'll live blind. I'm deaf, and without the gospel, I'll live in ignorant silence. I'm mute, and without the gospel, I'll live in stammering incoherence. The gospel is good news every day. So if my faith ever rests on my ability to stand on my own two feet, I've abandoned the gospel of grace. And I've graduated or demoted to self-righteous self-reliance. Unless I am first willing to say that the gospel is required from my weakness, I will never experience the strength of Christ that comes through grace. Close with this, 2 Corinthians 12. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content 
with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Are you weak today? Jesus loves weak people. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, so often it's, it's, it's really, really easy to begin prayer with um, the things that we know we need because we know that you love us and you want to give us good things and so those things aren't bad. But Father, I, I, I'm praying right now that you would give us deeper need. I, I pray right now that you would enlarge our eyes and our hearts to be able to see where some of those deep needs are. God, we have real needs. There's no question about it. I just pray, Father, that you will show us the need beneath the need the issues that are deeper than the ones that present themselves. Father, I, I pray that you would break our hearts in ways that make us long for you, that make us uh, have no other choice but to say, I, I'm at the end of myself, I'm at the end of my rope. I've tried so many things. I, I, I'm trying to be strong. I've been told to be strong. I've been told to just keep my head up. I've been told to just keep my chin up. God, I'm just, I, I'm, my neck is tired. The weight is too much, and it's not working. God, I pray that I don't have to live under the shame of that, but that I would find great comfort in knowing that you have come for the needy, that you love the needy, that you build relationship with the needy, that you use the needy. And Father, I pray that we don't ever turn away from our weakness. I pray that we embrace, we acknowledge, and then we trust you to fill that gap, to buy us back, and to remake us. Father, we pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.